Hey guys, by the time you hear this, I will have finished my latest travel book, which is due out from Random House next fall. Plenty more about what exactly that book is about in coming months, but for now I wanted to rebroadcast my classic Deviate Christmas special, which first debuted four years ago. Here it is. When the Sears catalog arrived, that was the official beginning of the holiday season, because I would go in there and I would start marking pages on all the things that I wanted, from my own riding lawnmower to um, Oakland Raiders V-neck sweaters that would make me look like a 95-year-old Jew. (laughs) Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people on fascinating topics that meander off topic. I'm Rolf Potts, travel writer, author, teacher, and now podcaster. Today, since it's almost Christmas, I'm going to change things up a bit and offer everyone a holiday-themed book on tape, or at least an essay on tape, about the Sears Christmas Wish Book, which I consider to be a work of American literature on par with, say, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Now, if you were born after 1985 or so, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you came of age at any point before that in the 20th century, especially in a provincial part of the country without a lot of shopping options, you probably had an intimate emotional relationship with the Sears Wish Book, particularly around Christmas time. So to help me introduce this uh, essay on tape and the concept of the Sears catalog and what it meant to people, I've brought on a f- my friend and crime novelist, uh, Todd Goldberg. How you doing, Todd? I am doing fantastic. I am the living embodiment of the Sears catalog. I frequently stand around with young children in my underpants, just <laughs> having conversations. <laughs> so did your fan, I mean, we were joking before before this segment, you know, that Goldberg is not a really Christmassy name. <laughs> <laughs> or it's the original Christmas name. That's true. That's true. I think Jesus' surname was Goldberg, yes. if, you go, if you go all the way back. <laughs> So did did you well, actually? What was your before we get to this year's catalog? What was your relationship to Christmas? Oh, we um, we always had a huge tree. Um, you know, we're Jews, obviously. That that's why this is funny. Uh, if you're at home and don't know why this is funny, um, but not religious Jews, and so we always had a big tree, and we also always had a menorah. Um, but we opened presents on Christmas Eve. That was our our thing. Is we always opened presents on Christmas Eve. My mom would frequently get one of those flocked trees, and then it would just, you know, it would it would migrate across the house to flocking wood because we had dogs. So the dogs would run to the trees. The dogs would be covered in the flocking. They'd run into the house. They'd shake. The whole house was covered in flock and tinsel for, you know, all of December. Hold, hold on. What's flocking? Is this a California or a Jewish term? <laughs> I do not believe it's a Jewish term. It's like the fake snow that they put oh, on. Oh, okay. See, I didn't come from a flocking family. We had tinsel, but for whatever reason, it was a... But you grew up in the East Coast. You had actual snow. Well, the Midwest. So, right. um, uh, and But the Great Plains Midwest. So, yeah, we had, ex- we had actual snow. And my family, this is a weird uh, detail, but there's like one evergreen tree in Kansas. And so we'd always dig up an eastern red cedar that, that, that was sort of this <laughs> sad Charlie Brown variation of, a, of an evergreen tree. Uh, but no, we didn't have flocking. And this is educational. I didn't even know what it was. So, so yeah, you- it, it, it was essentially the frosted tips of trees. Okay. <laughs> it, it didn't look natural. A lot of people had it and it would, it, it ruined pictures you know, because in the right. background, like it, did someone spill marshmallow sauce on a tree? What the hell is that in the background? And sometimes it'd have sort of a blue tint. Um, 
but you know, we, we were a big, um, my mom always did the whole house up for the holidays, you know, Santa everywhere. Um, but there's no, we had no religious aspect to it whatsoever. Um, and then as I've gotten older, um, I'm not, uh, particularly religious, but I'm, I'm particularly Jewish. Um, and my wife isn't Jewish. Um, and so we, we have Hanukkah and we have Christmas, but we don't give out gifts on Hanukkah. We just light the candles and I stare sort of forlornly into the middle distance thinking about the Maccabees. And then we open presents on Christmas Eve. Well, I guess there is something weirdly unreligious. I mean, like the the birth of Jesus is a pretty small part of the New New Testament. In fact, I think it's only in one gospel. It's a very commercial holiday. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure somewhere a Marxist is writing a PhD thesis about that snow you spray on trees and (laughs) you know it's symbolic aspects of of winterizing the desert or whatever. Uh, which brings me, which, which brings me into this year's catalog, which is sort of uh, the, my essay about this year's catalog will be the heart of this uh, episode. Did you get it? Uh, did you grow up uh, in the Bay Area in Oakland? Yeah, I grew up in uh, in the East Bay in Walnut Creek. Okay, and then um, moved to Palm Springs in uh, my freshman year of high school. So I, I think of Walnut Creek as my hometown, though I've actually lived in the desert um, for much longer than I lived up there. But yeah, this year's catalog was. Like that, when the Sears catalog arrived, that was the official beginning of the holiday season because I would go in there and I would start marking pages on all the things that I wanted from my own riding lawnmower to um, Oakland Raiders V-neck sweaters that would make me look like a 95-year-old Jew <laughs> who inexplicably was a fan of the Silver and Black. So, so you annotated, you would go in and annotate uh, your Sears catalog. Yeah, and I have three uh, siblings as well. And so you had to annotate with your own sort of marking because I'd annotate, my sister Linda would annotate, my sister Karen would annotate, my brother Lee would annotate. All of us moving through the series catalog with the things that we wanted. And so, like, I was the star, my sister Linda was the circle, my sister Karen, um, she was mostly just, like, listening to Janice Ian records. So she she marked only, like, you know, Clonopin. Now, they didn't sell Clonopin in the series catalog. They should have. Um, but we all had individual symbols that we used. And then um, to know, like, things that you wanted to go back to, we each would fold down a different side of the page. So there were four of us. So, like, I would get the far right corner that I could fold down on a page. My brother Lee would get the far left corner that he could fold down on a page. It was a whole system. So, so for anybody who was born after 1984, there's these things. It's an actual physical object that would arrive in your home by mail, I think, a, right before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, and then it was like, in a way, it was like, and, and we'll get to this in the es- essay and then we'll do an outro, but um, it was like this little internet of Christmas um, abundance uh, in between two pages of about 600 words long. And presumably you were sort of annotating it for Santa Claus. Um, and so like, so how did, how did your mom, I mean, did your mom go in and, and make note of the annotations or did she just shrug her shoulders and go buy you a beanbag from the... <laughs> a little bit of both. A little bit of both. So we would mark up the book, and then she'd also ask us for a list. Now, the thing is, we didn't have a lot of money. My mom was a single mother, and she was a journalist. So in the Bay Area, working as a journalist with four kids and a father who didn't pay child support, it wasn't like she was going to get us, you know, every single thing that we wanted. We would, you know, we'd get like eight or ten presents, you know, of varying degrees of quality. Um, and a lot of, inexplicably, we get a lot of um, popcorn 
and tins. Oh yeah, was <laughs> that it? was that was the beginning of the era of the tri flavored popcorn. Tin. I, I thought that was a Midwestern thing. Was it by Topsy? Our, like our place out here was called Topsy, and then people always ate the cinnamon first. There was yes. c- cinnamon, butter, and and caramel cheese. Yeah, or cheese. Caramel, yeah, yeah, no, caramel, yeah. Che- cheese and cinnamon went first in my family every single time. Um, so she would occasionally. You know, I think look at both of them. There were some things that were pretty obviously only available from the Sears catalog, like, um, you know, the off-brand Sears tape recorder or whatever that I wanted. Um, Or, and this is in your piece, but it was, I believe, the advent of the mass-produced sports team clothing wear. And so I I was a fan of all Bay Area teams, but the Sears catalog would have, you know, it wasn't just regional, it would have national teams in it. And I was colorblind. So the only real colors I can really see um, are like a deep green and, and um, black, you know, or like the main things that pop out for me. And so as a Raiders fan, but I would always see the Jets stuff and be like, oh, I want Jets clothing, not even knowing that the Jets were a terrible football team. And one year I just got like 30 New York Jets shirts and sweaters and like like logoed polos where I looked like I was coaching special teams. It was a really weird Christmas. <laughs> that, that, that's almost like another PhD thesis about like the effect of colorblindness on sports team merchandising sales. Well, you know what is interesting is I recently, and by recently I mean the last uh, two years, I got these glasses called Enchroma glasses that actually fix colorblindness when you wear them. And so for 45 years prior, I'd never really seen color. And then I got these glasses and you wear them outside and you can actually see all the colors, which has been a pretty amazing experience for me personally. And I, in fact, I should probably write an essay about it. But recently I was up in the Bay Area and I went to my childhood home and sort of parked in front of it and stared at my childhood home with these glasses on. And I called my sister and I was like, did you know we lived in a red brick house? <laughs> She's like, well, yeah. What did you think it was? It's like, I don't know, kind of a, kind of a gray color, I guess. Wow. Like, what color do you think bricks are? Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess bricks are red. I guess bricks are mainly red. Wow. Um, but I've had this experience of remembering things as the color gray throughout my entire life. And then seeing them again now for the first time with these glasses on and seeing the vibrancy of their colors. And I've been looking, sitting outside, looking at old pictures and imagine, and, and thinking that, oh, I, you know, I must have looked absurd in all of these things. But I, apparently my mom knew well enough not to dress me in colors I couldn't see very well. So I ended up basically wearing gray a lot anyway, except for all the New York Jets and Oakland Raiders clothing. Wow. I mean, that, that sounds like almost the, the first page of some sort of novel of some guy standing in front of his childhood home, seeing it for the first time, you know, uh, with his special glasses. I mean, it almost feels like some sort of 1950 theme, but that's interesting. Actually, let's, let's put a pin in that and come okay. back to it. I think now feels like a good time to jump into the essay itself. And, and to listeners, I apologize for my desk side. It's not a monotone, but I, I think the, uh, the exchange between Todd and I is going to be a little bit more happy go lucky than my somewhat <laughs> somewhat academic clinical reading of my own essay. But we're going to transition to that now, and uh, we're going to come back and continue this conversation on the other end. Uh, so for now, here's me reading my essay, uh, Literature of Desire. When I think back to the most affecting literature I read in my youth, the 1976 Sears Christmas Wish Book instantly comes to mind. 
I was obsessed with it when I was six years old, much like Stephen King's Night Shift would capture my imagination when I was 13, or Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions when I was 17, or Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass when I was 22. Now, I realize that mail-order catalogs are not considered literature in the same sense as, say, Leaves of Grass, but in practice, the Sears Christmas Wish Book was, for me, a kind of foundational text, a secular counterpoint to the Bible stories I learned in Sunday school around that same time. Even though I could scarcely read in 1976, I paged through the holiday catalog 620 glossy pages as if they amounted to an intoxicating graphic novel of desire, rich with abundance and possibility. By that time in life, I was familiar enough with the wish book that I anticipated its arrival by mail just before Thanksgiving. Thematically, the catalog was split into two equal halves, neatly divided by an index and order forms in the middle. The front half, clothing and household items, didn't much interest me, so I always opened it from the back so I could flip through pages of toys and electronics. I was four months into kindergarten at the time, and I used my newly acquired writing skills and a school tablet to itemize by page number which items I wanted Santa to bring me that year. I learned this annotation method from my sister Kristen, who was two years older than me. While Kristen's wish list was tasteful and pragmatic, however, usually limited to a dozen or so items she figured she stood a chance of getting, my notations were exhaustive and encyclopedic. The 1976 wish book gave names to desires I never knew I had, and I listed them all. Model airplanes and NFL logo AM radio sets, popcorn poppers and tinker toys, air hockey tables and refractor telescopes, boxed chocolates and polyethylene toboggans, chess sets and metal detectors. I knew I would never receive all these items, but that didn't matter since I regarded the catalog as a kind of self-referential fantasy novel. Though my Sears wish book list grew to more than 200 items that year, Santa brought me exactly one of them, a sports-themed wastebasket similar to the ones depicted on page 412. Tellingly, my parents decided to save on postage and purchase it from a local discount store, so my trash bin featured wide world of sports athletes instead of NFL team logos. I still tell this story when I want to illustrate my parents' utilitarian Midwestern frugality, and I still have the wastebasket. It sits in a place of honor in my spare bedroom. Late last year, I went online and bought a copy of the 1976 Sears Wish Book from a vendor on eBay. Leaving through its pages has in part been an act of nostalgia, but 40 years of retrospective have also helped me realize how the catalog was a product of a vibrant and uniquely American literary tradition that predated it by nearly a century. Indeed, to understand what the 1976 wish book represented, one must travel back to the year 1888. Part 2. How the Sears Catalog Made America, America. A Brief History. In the same way that improvements in European sailing navigation techniques gave rise to popular travel romance literature in the 17th century, Mail-order catalogs are the direct result of transportation technology, specifically the spread of railroads into the American West in the late 19th century. American railroad companies created standardized time zones in 1883 to make their transport routes more efficient, and this generated a demand for watches. In 1886, a jeweler's clerical error left a Minnesota station agent named Richard Warren Sears 
with a surplus of pocket watches, and instead of sending them back to the supplier in Chicago, he sold them at a profit to station agents in more far-flung locations. The demand for watches and other manufactured products proved so great in the American West that in 1888, Sears began to send out printed mailers to advertise and sell other goods. The first edition of Sears' mail-order catalog featured watches and jewelry, but it soon expanded to include items like musical instruments, clothing, books, sporting goods, sewing machines, saddles, shop tools, firearms, bicycles, baby carriages, and horse buggies. The 1895 catalog sold eyeglasses, complete with a self-test for, quote, old sight, near sight, and astigmatism, end quote. The 1902 catalog sold opium, a common homeopathic remedy at the time. Starting in 1908, Sears catalog began to sell ready-to-assemble houses, complete with tools, nails, and building instructions. It's hard to overstate just how much the Sears catalog and its competitors like Montgomery Ward and Hamaker Schlemmer transformed American life in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Whereas the people who lived in isolated frontier towns and farmsteads once had to haggle over a limited selection of items at local general stores, mail-order catalogs now brought these folks a rich variety of products at fixed prices. Far-flung rural communities once beholden to traditional folkways were now connected, if only at a level of longing and imagination, to the technologies, fashions, and abundance of cities. As often as not, the Sears catalog represented aspiration as much as it did commerce. Rural American values like hard work and self-improvement had always been pegged to abstractions like stability and sustenance. Now every country home had a tangible index updated each year of the material rewards a good life might offer. As media scholar Alexandra Keller noted, quote, the catalog could simultaneously function as a mall between two covers and pass itself off as non-commercial, something that, like cinema, claimed to exist largely for entertainment, edification, and fantasy, end quote. Moreover, schoolchildren often learned to read and calculate arithmetic by studying its product listings. Immigrant adults used it to determine what was considered normal in American culture, and people of all ages used the pages from old catalogs for outhouse toilet paper. In many rural homes, the Sears and Ward's catalogs were the only reading material apart from the family Bible. Aware of this, Richard Sears designed his catalog to be slightly smaller than the Ward volume so folks would instinctively stack it on top. While Bibles from that era evoked spiritual concerns in the ornate Shakespearean prose of King James translation, the Sears catalog was written in unadorned language meant to describe and sell a wide variety of material merchandise. According to historian Daniel Borstein, this language, the language of advertising, was, quote, with its spreading power and its new freedom from pedantic and typographic bonds already evolving into a democratic genre of literature, end quote. In this way, the Sears catalog played a role in the rise of simple, direct American prose that became the norm in the 20th century. Though the Sears catalog had featured Yuletide-themed items since 1896 when it sold wax candles to hang on Christmas trees, it didn't issue a holiday-specific volume until 1933 when it debuted its first Sears Christmas book. This catalog included items for customers of all ages, but it showcased a higher-than-usual selection of children's toys, from Lionel electric trains to Miss Pigtails dolls to Mickey Mouse watches. 
The Sears Christmas book was an instant hit, and so many customers came to call it the Book of Wishes that in 1968, Sears formally renamed it the Wish Book. By that time, the percentage of Americans living in cities had more than doubled since Richard Sears first issued his printed mailer, and suburban shopping malls and big box stores like Kmart were on the rise. But even as Americans urbanized, they retained their affection for the convenience and charm of mail order. In the winter of 1976, the first year I possessed the skills to write down which gifts I wanted, the Sears wish book was, for me, inseparable from Christmas desire. Part 3. Rereading the 1976 Sears wish book. In 1943, Sears' corporate newsletter boasted that the catalog served as, quote, a mirror of our times, recording for future historians today's desires, habits, customs, and mode of living. End quote. Around this time, Hollywood costume and set designers were beginning to use archived copies of the catalog to research styles and furnishings specific to certain eras, a show business design strategy that was used throughout the 20th century. Indeed, the most striking feature of the 1976 Wish Book all these years later is the way it looks like an illustrated companion volume to that 70s show. Corduroy, velour, and double-knit tartan plaids abound. Pages 66-67 feature a variety of wide-collar polyester leisure suits for preschool boys. Pages 91 through 92 feature perma-pressed gingham and lace dresses for preteen girls. Lava lamps share a two-page spread with multi-function home disco lights, and four pages are devoted to beanbag chairs. Barbie doll enthusiasts could buy a discotheque playhouse, quote, where fashion dolls come to rock out, end quote. TV-branded toys and sweatshirts featured images of Fonzie from Happy Days, JJ from Good Times, and the Sweat Hogs from Welcome Back Cotter. Sharp-eyed customers will notice a 22-year-old future supermodel Christy Brinkley donning nightgowns on pages 6, 12, and 21. Future actress Renee Russo, also 22 at the time, sports a lime green double-net polyester dress on page 130. Page 96 featured long-since-forgotten sidecar socks, which were essentially knee-high tube socks with pockets sewn into the shins. The 1976 catalog also advertises two 8-track cassette players and one portable monaural cassette player recorder with AM-FM, which is not particularly remarkable unless you go back one year and note that the 1975 catalog showcases six pages dedicated to 8-track players and no AM-FM compact cassette players to speak of. What on the surface might have seemed like a simple technological shift hinted at a sea change in the way people were listening to and interacting with recorded music. The 1976 Sears monaural portable cassette player recorder was, in fact, a kind of er boombox that presaged mixtapes, hip-hop culture, and the general shift, embodied with the debut of the Walkman three years later, toward the average person being able to curate his or her own music in any environment. Perhaps the most peculiar electronic items of the 1976 wishbook were the four discrete telegame consoles on page 390 and 391, all of which featured variations of the video game Pong. Four decades on, when home video game technology flirts with virtual reality and rakes in more than $15 billion a year, 
it seems absurdly quaint that Sears would manufacture and sell different Pong consoles based on whether the game had one variation, Pong 4, four variations, Super Pong 4, or something in between, like Hockey Pong or Super Pong. Due to advances in circuit chip technology since the silent TV Pong games on offer the previous year, all four consoles boasted cutting-edge sound effects. Quote, you hear the action when the ball hits, and you hear a beep when you score. End quote. What feels particularly telling amid the catalog's 164 pages of children's toys were items like the children's electric sewing machine, quote, sew real clothes like mom's, end quote, on page 558 of the girls' section. This machine feels dated less because of advances in gender politics than for the fact that over the course of the next decade, inexpensive Asian-made clothing pretty much precluded the need for sewing machines in middle-class households. In 1976, when China's anti-capitalist cultural revolution was, along with Mao Zedong, in its death throes, American women like my mother commonly purchased dress patterns and sewed their own clothes. By the end of the 1980s, however, Chinese-made clothing was so cheap and ubiquitous at big-box retailers that sewing ceased to be a necessary skill for young people. Just as tellingly, the 1976 Wish Book is also a relic of the final era before Star Wars, which hit cinema screens the following spring, revolutionized the way toys were marketed to young people. Apart from a few items branded to Happy Days, The Bionic Woman, and Star Trek, including an obvious Star Trek ripoff gadget called the Beyond Tomorrow Lunar Space Station, few of the toys are pegged to movies or TV. Established war toy lines like G.I. Joe had fallen out of favor in the wake of the Vietnam War, and the only military gadgets in the 76 catalog refer either to long bygone conflicts, like the Matchbox World War II miniatures on page 447, or non-weaponized vehicles like the G.I. Joe's gliders and jeeps on page 467. As the popularity of military tie-ins waned, toy companies launched action figure lines like Big Jim's Pack, short for Professional Agents and Crime Killers, a multi-ethnic A-team-like band of secret agents, and J.J. Arms, a super-private idol whose biokinetic hands could be replaced with hooks, magnets, or suction cups. Like Evil Knievel, whose stunt motorcycle toys featured on page 442, J.J. Arms was a real-life person an El Paso-based private detective who'd lost his hands in a childhood railroad accident and plied his trade with a pair of prosthetic hooks. Arms was best known for rescuing Marlon Brando's son Christian from Mexico-based kidnappers in 1972, and a few years later, the TV success of The Six Million Dollar Man had compelled Ideal Toy Company to create an action figure in his image. This toy hit the market in tandem with a ghost-written autobiography entitled J.J. Arms, Investigator, but the would-be superhero's rise to fame was derailed by an incisive and uncomfortably hilarious 1976 Texas Monthly article that depicted the amputee detective as a fabulous nitwit with a cartoonishly exaggerated sense of his own talents. I have only the vaguest memories of J.J. Arms in Big Jim's pack since, at age six, the focus of my Christmas wish obsession was football. At the time, the National Football League had aggressively branded itself in the Sears catalog, from NFL pajamas to NFL belt buckles to NFL bedsheets to NFL play helmets to NFL electric football sets, a pre-video game curiosity that featured football player figurines rattling their way across a vibrating metal game board. 
1976 Sears Christmas Wish Book seemed to imply that professional football was the only significant spectator sport in America, and apart from a brief inventory of Major League Baseball team wristwatches listed below the larger photos of NFL team watches on page 215, there's no evidence that other American pro sports leagues existed. If Sears Wishbook licensing was a calculated promotion strategy on the part of the NFL, it was a brilliant one. In the mid-1970s, professional football was growing in popularity, but the average player still made less than $40,000 a year, and baseball was inarguably America's premier sport. Two decades later, pro football had become statistically more popular than pro baseball, in part because of the NFL's adoption of more viewer-friendly rules and fan bitterness over the strike-canceled 1994 MLB season. But I can't help but think it also had something to do with the way the Sears wishbook seeded NFL-branded desire in the minds of little boys like me. Indeed, I've always wondered why I loved football so much when I was that age. My teenaged uncle had been a high school football star, and I enjoyed watching the NFL on TV each Sunday. But when it came to regional sports teams, I got far more excited watching baseball's Kansas City Royals, who were very good at the time, than football's Kansas City Chiefs, who were not. It very well could be that I didn't savor the Sears wish book because I loved the NFL so much as I loved the NFL because I savored the Sears wish book. Until I started writing this, that possibility had not even occurred to me. Now, when I think about it, it feels obvious. Part 4. The Leaves of Grass of Late 20th Century Commerce Sears published its last general interest mail order catalog in 1993 and began to scale back its Christmas wish book around the same time. By 2005, the wish book had effectively been discontinued, and while Sears has maintained an online version at wishbook.com since 1998, it in no way evokes the self-contained wonder of the old holiday mail-in order book. A new generation of Americans, pretty much anyone born after the mid-1980s, has little idea of what the Sears wish book was, let alone what it represented to young readers for most of the 20th century. Taken as literature, the wish book was more than a fictive vessel for childhood reverie. It was, in practice, a democratizing document that unmoored its readers from the constraints of place and tradition, uniting them in an optimistic narrative of cosmopolitan middle-class aspiration. This is, I think, an underappreciated aspect of American commercial literature. One of the reasons U.S. newspapers were able to sidestep European-style partisan patronage more than a century ago, for instance, was that revenue from retail store advertisements allowed them to stay politically neutral. In a similar way, the Sears catalog, with its mail-order objectivity, regarded all potential customers as equals by way of their purchasing power. One detail of the 1976 wish book that caught my attention upon rereading it was the matter-of-fact inclusion of black faces among its fashion models. Of the catalog's 269 clothing-oriented pages, African Americans appeared on 30 of them, which, at 11.1%, was the exact demographic sample size of African Americans nationwide in the mid-1970s. That can't have been an accident any more than it was an accident when the 1904 catalog's hair care section added wigs for African Americans in tandem with the emergence of the black bourgeoisie. Asian Americans are noticeably scarce from the 1976 wish book, but by the mid-1980s, after a decade of ramped-up immigration and demographic purchasing power, Asian faces were appearing in proportion to their population sample in the Sears catalog. Part 5 what it means when a kid wishes for something. 
As a writer, I'm best known for a book that promotes, among other things, lifestyle simplicity and anti-consumerist restraint, values which would seem to be at odds with my childhood wish book fixation. It's worth noting, however, that my book's philosophy is pragmatic rather than ideological in nature. There is, after all, a difference between mindless consumption and simple longing, and the wish book was never a prescription for unfettered accumulation so much as a Whitman-esque index of possibility. Much as other works of 20th century literature explored themes of knowledge versus ignorance, man versus nature, and individual versus society, the Sears Christmas Wish Book ultimately transported its reader into the inevitable disconnect between anticipation and reality. As often as not, the childish yearning for Christmas morning was more enchanting than the occasion itself, and the act of unwrapping the soon-to-be-dated Super Pong 4 console, or in my case, a not-exactly-wished-for wide world of sports wastebasket, carried as much emotional resonance as the subsequent hours using it. In learning to appreciate this line between promise and actuality, the young wishbook reader was sharpening his instincts for life in general. All right, so that was uh, Literature of Desire, an essay I wrote uh, last year about this year's Christmas catalog. And as we tra- uh, transition back in with our guest, Todd Goldberg, I read someplace that uh, your people immigrated from like the Ukraine to Walla Walla, Washington, which to That's my correct. mind is like the least Jewish uh, place that anybody could uh, immigrate to. But I'm curious because this year's catalog had such a rural emphasis, you know, as, as sort of this window mm-hmm. into the plenty of urban America. Do you think your family read the catalog in Walla Walla in the 1920s? I doubt they were getting the Sears catalog at the time, but by the 1950s, oh, for sure. Yeah. Because m- my mom was so steeped in Americana, she thought she was Ava Gardner. <laughs> well, my family came up, uh, they came like maybe a couple, gen- my most recent immigrants uh, came a couple generations over from Germany. And it feels like such a such an essential part of, basically, if you lived in the middle of nowhere, the Sears catalog was your window into the city. Uh, and right. so, so I was just curious that, would it be sacrilegious to have the Sears Christmas wish book, you know, sitting in the synagogue in Walla Walla? I, that's just an aside. I was just curious about that. I doubt it. Walla Walla was also such small town America. You know, I, I'm sure the Sears wish book was a big part of everyone's lives up there. Um, I, and my mom, you know, was had these airs about her that she was going to be a celebrity all her entire life, but she was a, a devotee to the Sears catalog. So it must have it must have come from somewhere. <laughs> so she she probably entered the Sears catalog from the front. You and I probably uh, started it from the back, where all the toys and the sports right. stuff was. Um, although, yeah, I, I think it was interesting that actually Christy Brinkley and Rene Russo's career, you know, uh, as models uh, was early on tied to this year's catalog. Um, Speaking of the toys in the back of the book, I mean, do, do you remember, did you like get J.J. Arms action figures? Did you get like uh, Oakland Raiders sleeping bags? Do you have yes. specific memories? Yeah, racetracks. I, I was a big marker of the racetracks that, that were being sold in the Sears catalog. I always wanted a Tyco racetrack. Um, and so I'm, I I got a lot of that. I got a lot of um, garbage cans with sports okay. team logos on them. I got a ton of those. Um, you got more. You got more than one garbage can. Did you use them for decoration, or did you put your garbage in all of them? So, <laughs> so one of them. So I had a New York Cosmos one. So this is fringe. Like this is North American Soccer League wow. swag that was being sold in the Sears catalog. I had a New York Cosmos garbage can that I kept my balls in, my toys and balls. <laughs> okay, my, my gotcha. sports balls. Right. And then I had a Raiders. 
garbage can that I kept my garbage in in my room. Um, and then we, I got a garbage can. I think it must have been an Oakland A's one. And it came dented in the middle, so it was never quite right. And my mom never returned it. And it sat in the garage of our house for the next eight years, it was just always there in the garage with a dent right in the middle. So you couldn't shove anything in because it, it it stopped the, the shoving down of things. Um, but uh, a ton of toys, all the action figures. Um, I, I think it taught me my toy taste, basically. Hmm. Uh, how so? And actually, one thing is, did you did you get like any branded action figures? Because one interesting thing about the 76 Wish Book is that there's all these, there's Big Jim's pack, which are action figures that are just invented to be toys. And in the post-Star Wars era, it seems absurd that they would just sort of invent a fictional toy universe without uh, attaching it to a franchise. So tell me a little bit about this, you know, your toy research that came out of the Sears catalog. Well, I I did get some of these fake non- um, like non-branded toys, just like you're speaking words. It was just like an army man in an army outfit, but it wasn't right. GI Joe. It was okay. it, essentially it was the um, the Hydrox of, <laughs> of toys. It's like oh, it, it sort of tastes like an Oreo and looks like an Oreo, but it isn't an Oreo. <laughs> right. So I got that, and then I got like weird um, like spaceships with men. That would go along with them that, you, you know, you'd sit in, in the seat. It was like an action figure doll. And it wasn't Star Trek. It wasn't Star Wars. It wasn't anything. It was just space. Um, and so I remember getting those. And also I remember knowing that what I had was the off-brand stuff. I got a lot of also, I should know, um, like tough skin type pants. Right. Because I was a fat which, kid. Which is the so, Sears brand, right? right. Tough skins. Tough Skins was, was like, that would come, and I'd open up the Christmas, and I'd be like, oh, God, it's it's pants that tell me I'm fat. That's great. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Well, so they also kind. had reinforced knees, right? They yes. Were- yeah, because I was always breaking through my knees, because I was also, in addition to being fat, I was uncoordinated. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, was, I was breaking through my pants constantly. Um, and the, I don't even know what, they were, must have been made out of, like, like, you know, the skin of pygmies or something, because they were not cotton right i have no idea what they were they, they again for people who were not of this generation they were again this this sort of some sort of polyester blend pants for little boys right. i didn't i didn't see them as a fat boy thing i had tough skins and i was kind of skinny but they had reinf- basically they were built to be as indestructible as possible for as long as possible until you outgrew them and they were made of, out of some sort of polymer i think right uh, and and they were not fashionable, and they were the ones that you opened up, you rolled your eyes, and you know just sort of thought, you know, God damn it, let's let's hope the next one has action figures or something. Well, and so that was the sad thing. But I would, they might have made them for for fit young future travel writers of America. But my tough skins came in husky size. Oh, husky! Like, oh my yeah. god. When when you get something marked husky, just send me to a fucking camp. You know, just send me off. <laughs> so I would get those things. I remember one year um, I got a Huffy bike from the Sears catalog. Do you remember Huffies? Oh, oh yeah, I totally remember Huffies. Sure. Yeah, there's, so, there was Schwinn and there was Huffy. Yeah. Huffy they sold at Sears. Right. And so while all my friends had like a mongoose or a red line, all these cool bikes that, uh, you know, would eventually lead them to careers becoming Tony Hawk or something. I had the bike that was essentially the husky, tough skin bike <laughs> sold by Sears. <laughs> it even sort of sounds husky, though. 
coffee. Ugh. Well, I think there was a lot of that. There were, there were like by levels, two, two different le- levels of product. I mean, like there were, when I was a kid, there was like, you could have Nikes and then there was the Prospects or the Sears right. brand. You know, there right. was the, there was the little, the, the, the two stripe or the five stripe shoes that your mom would get at Sears. And then there was Adidas or, or right. Nikes. And so that's what we contended with. In fact, it, it was a weird time. I don't know if there's a corollary right now. I remember like my mom found a really cheap, not quite Batman, but sort of Batman looking mask <laughs> that she got me for Halloween. And then she sewed me again. This is back when mother still sewed things. Oh, she, she sewed me a Batman cape with the Batman symbol. And, and so then there's that thing, I don't know if you had it in California, where you sort of parade around the playground showing right. off your, your costumes to each other. And I sort of have this kind of insane asylum semi-Batman mask <laughs> and then this double-knit polyester Batman symbol thing that my mom had lovingly sewed. And the kids are just like, I mean, it's almost like being the poor kid from one of those 80s bullies teenager movies. Right. But we weren't even the poor kids. We were just sort of like the – I was like the, the middle-class kid with a farm girl mom who couldn't be bothered to actually buy the complete Batman set when she could right. get the 39-cent almost Batman mat, mask and then say, sew a cape. Well, and I think, that, you know, I, I actually – thinking about all these like, you know, sort of vaguely off-brand things that my mom could afford to buy us. My mom, I should, I should know, my mom was a lunatic. And I've, I, I'm not speaking out of school when I say this. I've, I've written somewhat extensively about her being – an actual lunatic. But I also, I feel all this empathy now for her. Um, she's dead. Um, she's been dead for about 10 years, but a single mother raising four kids on a journalist's salary with undiagnosed bipolar disease, trying to do what she can, you know, like trying to buy kind of the toys that her, her crazy kids wanted, um, and trying to do a good job. And she was not suited to be a mom. My mother, um, but when she tried, it, it came from a good place. When she failed, she blamed her children. <laughs> but that's that's for another essay entirely. <laughs> wow! But it really gives me it gives me a lot of um, a lot of empathy because she was my age then. You know, I'm 46 now. Um, and she was born in 1937, so she would have been my age in uh, 1983. Right? Is that right? Yeah. So right about this time, she was my age with four kids, all of whom would become writers, all of whom had something to say all the time. Um, and it, it just, you know, that must have been, that must have been a really tough thing for her to try to to do the right thing and, and try to get, get us what we wanted at the holidays. In that way, the, the Sears catalog was probably a relief because she could just take this dog-eared uh, hieroglyphic annotated uh, single volume book and find out what all four of her kids wanted. Uh, so did your mom get you electronics, which were advertised in the Sears catalog or mainly toys and clothes? Oh, ele- electronics too. Um, she would split the electronics between buying it from Sears and then buying it from a thing that we had. And I don't know if they were everywhere, but it was called Best. Did you have Best where you grew up? No, no. Is it like Radio Shack or something? Best was a catalog only store where you could put stuff on layaway and then you would go and you would pick it up. So they had like storefronts and they had a warehouse in the back and you would order from the best catalog and you would then get, so you could put like $5 away every month and you'd get the off brand cassette player. You'd get gold line or whatever it was instead of Panasonic or Samsung or whatever. Um, and so we would get uh, record players and things like that from Sears and from best so that my mom could, could put a little bit of money away to get us, you know, the, 
the eight track player <laughs> that we wanted to play all of our Mac Davis favorites on. <laughs> It sounds like there were a lot of, like, the Sears brand and maybe the best brand was very, very abundant at your house. Oh, yeah, it was it was all over the place. Um, Sears and JCPenney, all the, you know, department stores. In Walnut Creek, where I grew up, there was a big Sears in downtown Walnut Creek and a big JCPenney also. Um, and Best, and they're all in the same sort of little area. And, uh, and she would get all of her stuff from those places, but a lot of Sears clothing, just a ton of Sears brand shirts and all that stuff. It's interesting. You know, the, uh, the, um, the present day corollary is maybe Amazon. Uh, but, uh, it's like, imagine Sears was like Amazon. If it had made their own lines of clothing and, and books and, and toys and everything else, you know, like Amazon is just the middleman, whereas Sears actively, promoted its own line of stuff. And like one thing I read about the essay is that they had a version of Pong, uh, that it wasn't mm-hmm. Atari. Basically, they bought the rights from somebody and they had this this goofy like multi-platform Pong thing going on. Yeah, we had something like that too. And um, it was an off-brand Sears video game console. It didn't work. And for years, it stayed underneath the TV on the TV stand. And the Pong game um, that... I think we got it from Sears. You had to put a screen on top of your television. So instead of it being the digital line um, for the Pong, you would change the screen out with like a piece of like plastic that would stay on because of static electricity. (laughs) Are you familiar with this? No. In fact, I I can hardly even imagine it. And some, somewhere there's like a 20 year old listening to this and thinking, my God, what, like when, what, what era was this? So it's, is it something to sort of mute the, the, you put it over the screen itself or a, yeah. Okay. You you put, so so it's like a filter or something. Yeah. So you put the the cartridge in the game, I guess. And then depending upon what the game was, you would throw up a different like plastic thing onto the television screen. Now, I haven't thought about this in years. I'm going to have to do a deep dive of research into this. But there would be three or four different games, and you had to you created the background, essentially, by putting up the screen. It's just amazing to think that we're like, you and I are 47. Are you 47? I'm 47. 46. You're 46. 46. I've, I've, I've already turned. Uh, and so we're not... It's coming up, actually, right after Christmas in January. I'll be 47. Okay, so so by the time this episode airs, Todd will be forty-seven. Oh God! <laughs> uh, but but just to think that forty years doesn't seem that long. But when we were six years old, or maybe eight years old, video games were literally this very low-tech version of ping pong, mm-hmm. where you had to put like saran wrap or some sort of like <laughs> like literal plastic filter on top of the screen of the television to make it feel more ping pong like. That's so strange. Right. That is so bizarre. But, you know, also Sears had all of those um, handheld games, too. So, you know, the the handheld football and handheld basketball that was just a red light going against other red lights. And then you'd you'd hit the button and it would move diagonally and then you would score points. And in my mind, I was, you know, I was always like, oh, this this is almost just like football. And now as a by the time poor America listens to this, I'll be 47 as an adult male who still plays John Madden football on my PlayStation 4, it's everything I always imagined. So I can't not play. It's like my childhood dreams come true so that I'm not holding a little 
box it's a, you know a red light chasing an orange light or whatever it was <laughs> which was impossible for me because i was colorblind i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> well again again there's 20 year olds thinking what the hell are they talking about but i had one mine was a coleco handheld electric football game mm-hmm. and basically you're trying to get your red dot past the other red dots um you know and there's like five lines of red dots. And so you're steering the red dots through the empty slots and coverage. And I loved that game. In fact, I had a notebook where I would have tournaments of different teams and I would play um, uh, Coleco football on behalf of like a fake team from Eastern, Can- like the Eastern Kansas State, you know, oh my God. hornbilled t- buzzards. <laughs> it wasn't, I, you know, I, I thought I was ashamed of this for years before I read that Jack Kerouac kept a journal and he played fantasy baseball with himself using like a toothpick and a spitball or something when he was a kid. So that makes me feel better for my uh, playing uh, round robin tournaments with myself in an electric football game. I, I did the same thing with baseball where I had an imaginary baseball league and it was all, I would roll dice to, uh, to simulate the games Right. And I had I had like, you know, divisions and fake players and biographies. I mean, it's no surprise, Rolf, that we became writers, you know, like like this right. is the, this is the beginning of storytelling. Right. In 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 young boys who were husky, perhaps, and had to wear <laughs> tough skins. But I like I had I had this full league and then I had a favorite team in this full league that I created. And I had logos that I drew, wow. got just all kinds of stuff. Um, and I would like, you know, sometimes I would throw a game for my favorite fake team so that they would win, which is absurd. (laughs) Well, that's so interesting that like the level of technology forced us to play the game at a level of abstraction. So the real thing happened in our heads, you know, as writers. And so in in order to become fans of this own very abstract little electronic moving dots across a screen that's the size of a credit card, um, yeah, we had to keep journals and weird fantasy leagues. And obviously, probably you and I were both very late to dating in life, you know. So, oh no, I I had more game than Coleco from an early age, Rolf. I was <laughs> okay. No, I was I was I was a dork. I was okay. Right. <laughs> Thank on. you. I was I was worried for a second because I, I sort of entered that. I was I was maybe the opposite. I was a super skinny kid, but um, I, I entered the dating world late, and maybe some of it had to do with uh, the abstractions with which I was um, living my sports life. So. Well, you know, actually, I entered the dating world right about the time a friend of mine said, dude, Ducky doesn't get the girl. Yeah. <laughs> and and again, oh, right. For, for those of you who are 20, that's a John Hughes uh, reference. Although I, I suspect 20 year olds are more likely to watch John Hughes movies in, in a strangely fanish way than to understand like Coleco electric football or anything else that was sold in the Sears catalog back in the day. Probably, probably. That's that's the that's our proximity to cool is right there. Is the John Hughes movies right? Right, cool for for the the generations of today. Right. Well, in, in the interest of time, and and because this is just a teaser for the actual episode. Actually, I've spoken out of turn. This episode will air in Christmas season when you're still forty six. Oh, thank God. If you want to hear more from Todd Goldberg, he it will actually be when he's forty seven. Although the interview will take <laughs> place in about two minutes from now. Uh, so, uh, on behalf of um, Todd Goldberg and myself and Santa Claus and the Sears Corporation, 
thank you for listening to Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including my essay on the Sears Wish Book and maybe a picture of my Coleco handheld electric football game. I still have it. Oh, uh, and, and the writings of Todd Goldberg can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. As always, you can contact me with insights, questions, or your own experiences with the Sears catalog at deviate at rolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by my nephew, Cedar Van Tassel. Thanks for listening, and I hope you listen in on future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.